Welcome again to our Medical Council of New South Wales podcast. This is part two of the podcast focused on prescribing of drugs of addiction. In this episode, we'll be exploring how to identify and respond to doctor shoppers and how to manage patient expectations. My name is Dr Martine Walker and I'm here today with Dr Simon Cowap, who's a GP, an educator, a writer and a council hearing member as well. Thanks for joining us, Simon. Hello, Martine. So, Simon, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional background? Well, as I said, I'm, I'm a general practitioner in, in Sydney. Uh, I've also had a, a fair bit of involvement with medical education over the years in, in various forms. And for some time now, I've been a hearing member for the Medical Council of New South Wales. So, as a long-time GP, you would have had experience with patients requesting S4D and S8 medications, so drugs of dependence. What do you think the challenges are in responding to those patients when they come into your, into your room? Look, I think that prescribing opiates and, and to some extent benzodiazepines, it really is one of the more difficult things we do in general practice because, you know, it's so easy to do more harm than good. I mean, I'm, I guess I, I'm prepared to accept that there are some patients for whom uh, opioids, uh, some chronic non-cancer pain patients for whom opioids can play a part uh, in maintaining uh, you know their well-being, but but it's it's so easy with this group of patients is to to actually do more harm than good. So th- that's what makes it difficult. And I suppose one of the issues is is recognizing that they might be drug dependent in the first place. Yeah, look, I guess there are a number of issues. I mean, first, uh, you know, particularly when uh, we're, we're seeing a patient for the first time, trying to yes w- work out broadly what category of patient they fit into from, from those who, are, I guess, at one end of the extreme are, are frankly drug-seeking patients uh, with really no other agenda in mind except to ab- obtain some, some opioids, to those who, you know, may have, uh, you know, been commenced on, on opioids for a perfectly legitimate reason but have become, you know, drug-dependent uh, in that process and the opioids are, are no longer particularly helpful. Uh, and, you know, I, I guess there's a range of patients in between. I suppose it's important in the first place, to get correct information about those patients and the claims that they're making or the medical history that they give you? Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, a really complete sort of, I hate to use a somewhat hackneyed phrase, but but biopsychosocial assessment is really key for any patients where you're either continuing to prescribe or thinking of initiating uh, opioid. And that's one of the reasons I think that, you know, we should always be very suspicious of those patients who turn up at the end of the day and, and they, you know, what they want is, is an opioid prescription. They're very focused on their prescription. You know, and in fact, I think it's very unwise, you know, to prescribe opioids either ongoing or initiating them, you know, without a really thorough assessment of the patient. As I said, not, not just the pain, but also, you know, their, their general medical history, their social circumstances, their, their current mental health and, and their risks. Tell me about some of the side effects, the damage that these medications can do. Well, yes, I guess even before we say that, the evidence that they do good is not very strong. I mean, there's there's, perhaps some evidence that they do afford some analgesic effect in patients with chronic pain, but there's really very little evidence that they actually improve people's overall function. And there's certainly some evidence to suggest that amongst patients with chronic non-cancer pain, those who take regular opioids actually have worse outcomes. So the first thing is the evidence for their use is is fairly flimsy. Uh, And then in terms of harms, I mean, obviously there's quite a a lot of them from obviously the the risks of dependence. They are associated with an increased risk of depression from the kind of side effects of the drug, things like um, obviously well-known constipation, but other, you know, biliary acarnesia and nausea and, and other gut problems. 
Uh, probably they're things like itch, things like sedation. If you've got sleep apnea, they make your sleep apnea worse. And uh, probably not quite so well known is their association with osteoporosis, uh, which in combination with an increased falls risk uh, is a significant uh, risk for, for many people. And of course, in in terms of their efficacy, for some people, they actually get opioid-induced hyperalgesia as opposed to any analgesic effect. So there really are a range of of sort of harms that can be associated with these drugs. And I suppose that's not without saying all of the other sort of social implications of drug dependence, like impact on relationships, impact on, on family members, the legal impacts of being convicted on drug charges, for example. Driving while, you know, under the influence. And, yeah, so there are a whole range of, of social adverse outcomes as well, yes. What are some of the red flags that give us a sign that a patient might be drug-dependent or drug-seeking? Well, I guess there's, there's two sort of sets of things here, I suppose. One, there is, you know, we might talk about what are the risks that someone will develop problems on opioids that should be taken into account when you're considering prescribing them. And they're quite well summarised in, in a fairly widely available thing called the Opioid Risk Assessment Tool, which is easily available to download. But basically it covers things like a personal, the obvious things, like a personal or a family history of substance abuse, things like the presence of mental health disorder, and particularly important for women is early childhood sexual abuse is actually a considerable risk factor for developing problems. And age, people between 16 and 45 are slightly more likely to develop problems, dependence on opioids. So I guess they're the sort of things that we want to look at before we even consider starting someone on opioids. And certainly if they've got a a risk score above three on the risk assessment tool, then I think you'd be wise to get specialist input before you started them. And then I guess there's the patients who are already on opioids and and you're assessing them uh, and and you're looking for things that indicate that they are currently having problems. And and I guess that's where we look at what we broadly call aberrant behaviours. And I I suppose they range from relatively minor kind of aberrant behaviours like, uh, you know, people who turn up early for their prescriptions, people claim that they've lost prescriptions, people who have uh, unsanctioned dose escalations, people who get a bit sort of antsy and demanding uh, about getting their prescriptions and, and, you know, uh, harassing the receptionists and, and asking for prescriptions over the phone, that sort of thing. And then, of course, there are the really more major aberrant behaviours, uh, which is sort of repeated doctor shopping, obviously people who are obtaining other opioids, possibly street opioids for use at the same time, people who are using them in, in uh, administering them in ways they're not intended, like you know, people who are injecting them, for instance. So, so there's a whole kind of range of you know, aberrant behaviours from the, the relatively minor, which you might deal with yourself by tightening you know, the parameters um, with which you prescribe to, to the really major ones, which would probably lead you to think, well, I, I'm not safe to prescribe to this person at all anymore. Simon, what are the steps you would go through and what resources do you use when you suspect that a patient might be drug dependent? Yeah, I guess that that's what makes this a difficult area really, is that you know we often don't have that forensic capacity. We often don't really know whether a patient is, is abusing opioids. And, you know, and to some degree, you know, we're used to giving patients the benefit of the doubt. But I, I guess once the suspicion has been raised in your mind that a patient may be abusing or you know, having aberrant behaviours, then, I mean, obviously you want to you know, undertake your own sort of thorough clinical assessment and, and, again, looking for things like the degree to which the patient, you know, they talk about active self-management. You know, is this a patient who is sort of 
engaged in their own treatment? Are they, are they very focused on, on passively taking the medication or, or are they also engaged in seeing their psychologist and doing their physiotherapy in, you know, in, in a broad range of, of things that are going to help them, not just looking at the medication? But I guess obviously this is a time when we want to communicate with other people. I mean, certainly who else has seen the patient? Have they seen pain specialists? Uh, have they seen other, other colleagues? And, and you know, certainly we want to be communicating with them and not just relying on information that the patient tells us or, or the crumpled old CT scan showing some you know, degeneration that they've brought in as an article of faith. And then, of course, that's where things like the prescription shopping information service or the doctor shopping uh, service comes in useful. But, of course, that can have its limitations in that you, know, you, you need to have chalked up, I think it's six practitioners. There are thresholds for that. It's a, it's a fairly high bar, but that certainly is useful. And it doesn't cover private prescriptions either. No, it doesn't. So while it's obviously significant if they are flagged by that and it gives you some comfort if they're not, it's, it's not an absolute proof. Uh, and it can be useful to go back over the prescription record and see whether they've been escalating their use. And, and, and also, I guess it's important here to bear in mind the safe limits of oral morphine equivalent daily dosing, and you know, which in general practice, I think, you know, should be set at around 60 milligrams. Certainly people taking over 100 or 120 milligrams, the evidence is that their harms are much, much higher. So yes, making sure that their OMED is, is around that 60 milligrams or equivalent. And of course, you know, seeking advice if you're not sure, contacting a, a pain service or a, a dependence service in, in your area. And sometimes it may be appropriate in, uh, to contact community pharmacies and, and see what they can tell you about the patient. From a practice point of view and also as an individual practitioner, what can you do to manage drug-seeking patients? Look, I, I think, again, for the what you might call minor aberrant behaviours, the patients who maybe have one episode of doctor shopping or, or they are asking for their scripts a bit more frequently or they've had minor unsanctioned dose escalations, then, you know, I, I think you can institute tighter prescribing and tighter dispensing policies. So that's things like making sure that there's only one prescriber in the practice who prescribes for them, checking the doctor shopping hotline regularly and telling the patient you're going to do that, Stage dispensing is a very useful tool where you contact, uh, and also they should only have one pharmacist, so, you know, one prescriber and one pharmacist, and you should contact that pharmacist and weekly or even three daily dispensing uh, so that they only get given a small amount of, of medication and being very clear with them about what the consequences of further, you know, minor aberrant behaviours would be. And, and also, I think, obviously, letting your colleagues know that you consider there may be a, an issue with this patient to make sure that uh, if they pop in to see them, they're aware of that. And I think for the people who, you know, are involved in the more major aberrant behaviours, then really you're well within your rights and you should, you know, essentially refuse to, you know, to prescribe further and refer them to a, um, a substance dependent service. I mean, I guess for some patients too that are in between, you, you might want to continue prescribing, but strictly on a weaning basis. So, you know, you might not want to cut them off, but you might um, put in place the measures we talked about earlier, but also say, look, we are going to be reducing your, I'm only going to prescribe to you on the basis that we reduce your dose by, you know, five to 10% a week over the next period. And then by a certain period of time, it'll be off. I also think having a very strong practice policy that all of the doctors and all of the staff are aware of and abide by is really important so that you can say to a patient, 
sorry, it's not the policy of this practice to prescribe opioids at a first appointment. Look, absolutely. I think that's really important and it gives you a lot of backing. I mean, because obviously some doctors find it easy to set boundaries and limits and say, no, I, I work with one of those, she's splendidly firm. But, you know, I think the thing for doctors, we're all meant to be empathic and patient-centred and that's great, but it, it can make it hard in these cases, realistically, where the person is, is acting up, they seem genuinely very distressed, they're putting a lot of psychological pressure on you to prescribe. And, and you know, it, it's, it is easy. I think a lot of us find that it is a very real pressure. So that is absolutely where having the backup. Look, it is a practice policy that, you know, we do not prescribe opioids on, on the first visit. You know, it may be that, and there's a ceiling perhaps to the amount of opioids that anyone in this practice can prescribe without referring to a pain specialist, that, you know, that we seek review from our colleagues uh, after a certain interval. So I think there are a range of things like that that, you know, are really useful to have as, as a practice policy that you can brandish to say, look, it's nothing personal, I just can't do this. And also I think it's reasonable to kind of blame us to some degree at the medical council or other regulatory units to explain to people that, you know, this is an area because of the increased harm, because of the increased number of overdose deaths from, from prescription opioids that, you know, the regulatory authorities are really cracking down on, you know, like I, I, you know, there are very strong policies from the government that I have to abide by. So I think you can, you know, use both practice policies and, and sort of health department and, and council policies to back you up and make it less of a personal thing and, and you know, to explain why you simply can't do it. That's, that sounds very appropriate. So doctors in regional areas, I think it can be really tough for them because accessing pain management and pain management services can be hard. Look, it is. I mean, obviously, I think... Many of us struggle to get our patients into pain clinics. And I think as a GP, uh, you know, I've had this experience myself, you do find that they'll want to pick and choose. You know, they'll take the patients that are good at active self-management <laughs> so their figures look good. And, and, and so in a way, they often don't help that much with the more difficult patients and naturally they, they come back to see us. So look, I, I, but I think that difficulty is exacerbated in regional areas. You know, some people take the approach that they're simply not going to prescribe and I, I can understand that and I think the difficulty is if you are one of those who prescribe you tend to get everybody in town so you know it's a difficult one but I, I think you still have to apply the same principles you know you, that you want to at least get people engaged in as many allied health activities as you can if there is a physiotherapist if there is a psychologist if there is a pain management service anywhere nearby if if there is a you know a substance use service that you can utilize but you know that you still want to see them being active you still want to see them engaging in a range of other activities other than medication taking and, and you know you still need to be on the lookout for those aberrant behaviors and and you still want to have the same you know limits on the amount of opioids you prescribe and and again i think that's where you know a practice policy is very important but look this is a difficult area of medicine i'm the first to acknowledge that Changing tack a little bit, what should a doctor do if they're aware that another medical practitioner is prescribing drugs of dependence inappropriately? What we do see sometimes at the council is people who, you know, where there are a number of practitioners in the same practice are over-prescribing and, and I think we're all influenced to some degree by what others are doing, much as we might say we're not. So, I think nonetheless, it doesn't matter whether other people in your practice are perhaps prescribing inappropriately, that doesn't let you off the hook for doing the same thing. And, and each prescription that you put your name to is your responsibility. You can't simply say, well, Dr. Joe Blow did it, so you know, I'm just carrying on. So I think first thing to do is to discuss it with the practitioner in question, perhaps as an individual, to ask them about that and have a, a chat about what they're doing. 
I guess if that's not sort of successful, then raising it at a practice level, at, at a practice meeting, and, and perhaps using it as a chance to put in place a practice policy if one doesn't exist, or, or if one does exist, then obviously to point out that that practice is not in accord with that. And hopefully a lot of these things can be resolved at a practice level. But if you are concerned that someone is continuing to have significant inappropriate prescribe and it can't be resolved at a, an individual or a practice level, then certainly contacting either making a, a complaint, I, I guess, to the, the PRU, the Pharmaceutical Regulatory Unit, or to the uh, HCCC is, uh, is, is perfectly appropriate. And, and we do sometimes see, uh, you know, some of this is brought to light by uh, colleagues, you know, complaining and making a complaint. So in summary, I think the takeaway messages from this second part of the podcast are, one, that we need to be careful to not do more harm than good that we need to be vigilant in our prescribing and in our management of drug-seeking patients, that it's important to have strong practice policies to back you up when you're confronted with a patient who's drug-seeking, and thirdly, that always be ready to phone a friend, to speak to a practice peer, to speak to the local pharmacist, to speak to a, a pain medicine colleague to help to support you and guide you in your management of drug-seeking patients. Yeah, look, I think that's absolutely right. I think we should all treat every patient on opioids as a trial of N equals 1, uh, to be reassessing them regularly against the harms and benefits and be absolutely have it in mind from the very beginning that we are going to withdraw this medication as soon as possible. Simon Cope, thank you for sharing your knowledge and experience with us today. Thank you, Martine. This podcast was brought to you by the Medical Council of New South Wales. You can access various links and resources by clicking on the View Description button located right here on the podcast player. And if you'd like further information on any of the content in this podcast, you can also contact the Medical Council of New South Wales via their website, mcnsw.org.au.